This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Marie mutsky Mockett, author of American Harvest. There's something really deeply rhythmic and beautiful and constructive in watching human beings go out and harvest wheat. We'll be back with Marie mutsky Mockett in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 300th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich and meaningful content, like that on First Draft, we're simultaneously expanding the diversity of voices available for the public. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. No please, no ads. Also, starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I am also very grateful. I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer right now, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is fiction and nonfiction writer Marie mutsky Mockett. Her works include the memoir, Where the Dead Pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye, the novel Picking Bones from Ash, and the nonfiction book American Harvest. Mockett was born and raised in California to a Japanese mother and an American father, which has greatly influenced her writing. Her father grew up in Nebraska on a 7,000-acre wheat farm, 
some of which she inherited. Realizing she knew little about farming, Mockett accompanies a group of evangelical harvesters who cut the crops on her family land as well as travel throughout the American Midwest and West seasonally to do their job. American Harvest chronicles her travels with the harvesters, including her trips to churches and fields, as she questions her own beliefs and that of the crew she is working alongside. We began the interview with me admitting to Mockett I didn't know about the harvester culture before reading her book. One of the things I didn't realize, this is a little bit of a tangent, I just realized how much I didn't really think about how farming happens in the sense that I just kind of figured that if you grew wheat, then you went out and you cut it and you brought it wherever it goes to be counted. And I didn't realize that there's really this whole subculture of people that follow the wheat where they are the ones that invest in these, you know, $300,000 combines and they come every year and they move around. I had no idea that happened. I thought it all just sort of happened with the people who grew it. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and there are people who do cut their own crops but uh, a good portion of these cash crops of these of these grains, corn, um, soy, and wheat are cut by custom harvesters who, as you say, follow the wheat belt as the as the fields ripen and kind of follow the natural rhythm of the crop as it ripens. I think I have a picture on Facebook somewhere, the first two loads that are heading out now to Texas, um, waiting to set up camp because wheat harvest will probably start in a in a couple weeks or so down in Texas. Um, But it is, as you say, a whole subculture. And it's interesting when I was on the road with the harvesters, I definitely didn't look like I was from wherever I was, you know, and people would say, who are you? What are you doing here? And I would explain to the guy in the in the general store or the gas station or whatever. And almost always the man, if he was a local, would say, oh, I always wanted to do that. So for people who are from that part of the world, it's an incredibly romantic uh, activity with tremendous meaning. Did you find it romantic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sort of a romantic person anyway, and I will find romance in all kinds of things, although perhaps not the pandemic. Um, But I mean... Absolutely. You know, the book really, I think I repeatedly talk about how beautiful the country is. And that's one level of of falling in love with this entire process is just describing the way the land changes and what the birds are and what the flowers are and how the quality of light changes. But there's something really, you know, deeply rhythmic and beautiful and constructive in watching human beings go out and harvest wheat. All with the um, intention of providing food for people. And it's funny, I didn't even make this connection, but somebody said to me the other day, you know, we're all posting pictures of baking um, on social media during this pandemic. And all that flour, of course, comes from the heartland. And I, and I thought, oh, that's right. That's what all that wheat was for. Wow, that made me tear up. <laughs> Well, and also as you travel through the country, as you know, because you're a traveler too, you run across so many different historical narratives. That's one of the things about the plains that I think is makes it so compelling is that the history is really naked and out in the open. You can find, you know, the remains of trails, the remains of people who have disappeared. Um, you can find threads of history, and I feel like they're very, very 
obvious. They stand out. It's not impossible to find history in cities, but there is so much more modern culture that meets the eye as you walk through a city that um, it can be easier to hide from history. But the plains, I, I, for me, everything was wide out in the open, begging for me to sort of investigate what the history of the place was. And I, I found that, I couldn't help but find that a very romantic process. That didn't mean that everything I found was, you know, happy, but, um, but I, I enjoyed the process of doing that. So you were, you had this interest and, and part of it is how you grew up because you do have this family farm that's been passed down in gener- from generations in Nebraska. And you had a connection to a man named Eric, who is actually from Pennsylvania, but his job was to really cut the wheat and follow the wheat. And he has his own crew, his wife, his kids, um, people he typically uses every year and a few newcomers. And because you were friends with him, you were invited along with him sort of like as a, as a journalist, but also part of the team. And his team was very religious, as you mentioned, um, which I guess other, other teams are as well. I met Eric, I think, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe even longer ago than that. Um, and he has been cutting my family's fields for, obviously, for decades, um, which is not uncommon. Um, farmers in the Great Plains develop relationships with custom harvesters and just know that the harvester is going to come through the next year and cut their, the wheat on their land. There are many reasons why it's a beneficial relationship. If you develop a relationship with a custom harvester, they know your fields. They tend to know in what order the fields ripen. They know where there are irregularities to the ground, where there maybe there's like a pit in the ground that you have to go around or where there's a soggy spot or they will know the best way into a field, etc. So my family had a relationship like that with Eric. And my father had had really mixed feelings about farming, but he would always say to me that if he died, there were a couple of people who I could trust um, with the farm. And Eric was one of the guys who said, you know, if anything ever happens to me, you can trust Eric. Um, and Eric knew that. And so after my father passed away in 2008, Eric really went out of his way to start to try to explain farming to me. Um, and I knew a little bit because I'd had conversations with my father, but I didn't, I didn't know it um, really deeply. And I didn't have a whole world view of what farming was. Like you say, I sort of generally had this idea of where food comes from, but not this, this complex ecosystem. Um, and over the years, Eric would say, you know, I wish you could see the Tetons or uh, I wish you could meet these interesting farmers I know in Oklahoma or I wish you could see what the wheat looks like in Texas, etc. And I had taken field trips um, to see him on his farm in Pennsylvania and he had introduced me to a lot of different farmers and different people who work in agriculture. And then in 2016, it all really came together because he had some concerns about Trump uh, potentially winning the presidency. We weren't sure at that point if he would or wouldn't. Uh, And Eric, you know, strongly expressed this concern that part of why we have Trump is due to uh, an inability for um, different parts of the country to understand each other. 
And so his contribution to trying to make that better was to have me come along with the harvesters and show me the interior of the country so that it would make more sense to me. Um, and the guys on his crew tend to be Mennonites. Eric is from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and a lot of people know that's the site of um, the movie Witness, you know, I think is set in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania with Harrison Ford. It's where the Amish live. Um, and it's where a lot of other uh, Anabaptist Christians live and farmers live. Um, and Eric tends to hire young men from the Mennonite community, generally, who have an agricultural background. A lot of these guys um, have not been to college. In fact, on the crew, really only Justin, his son, had been to a four-year college. Uh, some of the other guys had been to high school. Uh, some had only made it to eighth grade, um, and a number of them had been homeschooled. So it's really a very different world than the world that I was raised in with, you know, conventional education and kind of Ivy League educations. Um, but these are also guys who are really good, not only at driving equipment and machinery, but at fixing it. And they, they can read terrain and read weather. And they're also incredibly good at teamwork and working with each other. Um, and they have their own particular culture really that they that they share that was a completely new to me so I was very much a fish out of water <laughs> so once you got on the road you know I'm not sure what you thought you would be exploring when you started to write this book but what comes up are so many issues of faith versus not having a faith or, or at least a religion, a, a very old indoctrinated religion versus not having a religion or God versus not believing in God because you, you have uh, Japanese heritage. It was sort of white versus people of color and city versus country and probably underlying it was Democrat versus Republican or conservative yep. versus liberal. Did you know you would find that? I did not know that I would be exploring race to the degree that I did in the book. And I naively thought that I would write a book about farming and about harvesters and about farmers, and that I would be this sort of impartial, objective journalist. And in my mind, I was thinking, you know, that I would be like the white guy who goes into some environment, observes it, and writes a story. And the problem I kept running into is that people kept interacting with me and that I didn't have this ability to sort of fade into the background. Um, I kept looking out of place uh, and it became particularly uncomfortable for me when I was mistaken for being a Native American. And then the Native Americans thought I was a Native American. So this was not the sort of objective fade into the background journalist experience. All of that became part of the story. And then I had to really investigate what is the history of race in this part of the country? And that was a really big surprise. Um, I knew that I was entering into a far more Christian environment than I had ever been in in my life. We went to church every Sunday, but I didn't know what I would find. I would go to the church in the beginning, and we, we went to different churches all the time. We were always, because we were always moving, we were always going to different churches and different denominations. Um, what I didn't know was if I would have an experience that made sense or that was remotely meaningful. I mean, I had in my mind the question uh, of what is Christianity? And 
is there something about it that's going to be meaningful to me? Am I going to understand something about why it has been so important throughout history? And there was no guarantee that I would have any experience that would make any sense to me in that way. So that was that was a really big unknown. Um, and in the book that really happens, I think in Oklahoma, we go to a, I get invited to a Mennonite church um, where they sing in four part harmony. Um, it was a, it was a kind of a plain church in the sense that it wasn't highly decorated, um, but it had a very literate, very smart, articulate pastor whose um, sermon that day was really interesting to me and was sort of the start of me thinking, oh, there's, you know, there's something to church that even I can get something out of, which was kind of exciting to me because you have this phenomenon of Christianity and I didn't understand it. Um, and I wanted to, and so I was really pleased when I did, but that too was a, was a surprise, but I mostly was trying to stay open to this experience and not carry any of my baggage in or any pre-scripted narratives of what was happening so that I could, you know, this was a world I didn't understand. And I thought my job was to go in and to try to understand it as best I could. You wrote a lot about trying not to judge them for their beliefs or the type of sermons they go to and appreciated <laughs> that you went to that you couldn't get out. But at the same time, they're totally judging you. I mean, not all of them, but just that you think about it maybe as this urban, intellectual, elite, so to speak, liberal. She probably votes Democrat. She likes organic food. Like what? Like, I don't know yeah. if we can hang out with her. They teased me, too. You know, they would say I remember one of the early anecdotes that was so funny for me Um well, I don't know that people will find it funny, but at breakfast, um, Justin says, so is it true that in the city when your pet is dying, you actually pay someone $200 to put the dog out of its misery? And I said, yes. I mean, unless the vet can come to your house and put the put the animal to sleep in your home, you, you have to take it to the vet. And they looked so shocked. And then you know, and then they say, well, I don't know, $200 or a buck 25. And then they have a whole conversation about how much ammo actually costs. And the conversation was serious, but they were also, you know, they were also teasing me, trying to see if I was going to be horrified um, by the fact that people do put their animals down. But the other thing I hope that comes through is how capable these guys are. I mean, they, they're only kids, really. They're like 20, 21, 22, and they drive this really expensive, heavy machinery. Um, they're constantly navigating obstacles, uh, and they're highly, highly competent. I mean, they can do things that I can't do and that none of my friends could do, you know? Um, I remember there's a, there's a scene where we're at a rodeo in Texas, and it has rained. This is after a tornado has gone through, and after we've had a hailstone, a hailstorm with, you know, golf ball or larger sized pieces of hail. And I'm with uh, two young people. One person is an old order Mennonite. He's only been to eighth grade. And then I'm with a young woman who I think is like 20 or 
she turns 20 on the road that day. And the two of them start arguing about who's going to drive my car because they don't trust that I'm going to be able to get out of the mud. And in hindsight, I don't blame them. You know, I don't know how to read the road or the ground or mud as well as either of the two of them do because the, the two of them are constantly figuring out how to get machinery out of the mud or how to ensure that machinery doesn't get stuck in the mud. And that's a skill, you know, there's just no way around it. Um, so they, they absolutely have their in, intelligence um, and their talents that I don't have and that my friends don't have. But there are plenty of points in the book where Eric will say to me, you know, what would your friends say about this? And then I'll say, my friends would say that that is stupid. So even though um, I am there representing the city, you know, I don't shy away from expressing what kind of the opinion that my that I know that my peers would have. And I give him a lot of credit because he remained open to hearing whatever it was that I had to say. I mean, we had the really hard, a lot of the really hard conversations um, that most of us don't ever have <laughs> with a person who's, you know, from a different world. And the other thing I would say is, even though I knew that I was from a completely different environment, I never feel so sure of my perspective or so sure of the rightness of my perspective that I feel like I can walk into someone else's world and know that I'm right and know that they're wrong. Now, there may be instances um, where I'm in an... Ex Actually, that's not true. There are some instances in the book that, and I describe them, where I feel sick and I feel ill because I'm hearing or seeing something that feels definitely wrong. But I couldn't, from the start of the book, walk in thinking everything from my perspective is right and everything in this perspective is backward and wrong. Um, and I couldn't write the book with that tone because it wouldn't have worked and they would not have opened themselves up to me to share as much as they did. Right. And all that is, it's all perspective. I mean, if they were writing a book about coming to visit you and hanging out with you for three months in the city, it's all fair game. You know, everyone comes into the world with kind of the perspective they have. And I think one of the central questions that drove you, that you asked again and again, encapsulates kind of how complicated it is, all of this stuff that you were looking at, race, history, who owns the land, um, you know, religion. And that question really was, if Christians believe in creation and reject evolution, but they use GMOs, and city folks reject God and believe in evolution and want organic non-GMO food. Like, how do you make sense of all that? What does it mean? Yeah. And that was the original question. And Eric would say to me, we, and we, we had all kinds of conversations about this over the years, even before I started working um, on the book. And he, you know, he would take me to meet really plain living Amish farmers who farmed with um, mules who used Roundup, Monsanto's Roundup. <laughs> <laughs> which was apparently fine. Um, and he would talk to me about conversations that ministers would have trying to decide whether or not it was okay to use a cloned cow. And I would say, is it okay to use a cloned cow? And he would say, well, if she's a good milker, you know, you might want to clone a cow. It was really interesting to explore this idea. 
Um, one thing I want to say is, I think we're so, and, and this, and it may be futile for me to say this at this point, um, but the narrative that we're fed all the time is that there are sides, right? There's our side and there's their side. And I really tried to ask myself, not what is their perspective? Can I see things the way the other side sees them? I really tried to say, what is the reality of what I'm seeing? Which is a little bit of a different question than can I think like the other side or can I tell the other side story? Um, and having said that, it's not like I was traveling through the heartland with true Bible thumping, super extreme Baptist militia type people. That's not who I was with. But hopefully that's also going to be eye-opening to readers to know that somebody can be a Christian, an evangelical Christian, etc., but not necessarily be at that extreme end of the spectrum. It certainly taught me a lot about how there are so many cultures and subcultures, as you said, uh, in the United States. And that's, I don't, and I was not aware of that at all. As you got into their culture, you know, you went to church with them. You went to lots of different types of churches. You went to church in people's homes. You went to mega churches. You went to more conservative churches, or at least churches with more conservative sermons. And you also found moments where you, you felt like really off and, and like what they were doing was like dampening intellectualism or making you feel like that's not okay. But you also had moments in a megachurch, for example, where you sang and you, you came out in tears. So you really had a spectrum of feelings. So it wasn't like this, I don't like church. It was so individual based on the experiences you had at each one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because one of the major characters in the book is Justin, who's 23, who is Eric's son and who has been to college and he's going to college during the time that the narrative takes place in the book. And Justin had thought he was going to become a pastor and then decided um, when he was a, a teenager that he was not going to become a pastor and had had a major crisis of faith. And so he was almost like this tour guide who was trying to explain this foreign world to me. And so, you know, he would say, like, when we left the megachurch, he would say to me, well, you know, that was a seeker sermon. That kind of sermon was designed to get the interest of someone like you. It's all designed to make you feel interested in going to the church, and then you explore the church further through these other side classes or meetings that exist. And, or we would go to another church and then I would say, I didn't understand that. And he would say, well, that's because you're used to the secret sermon, which is a sermon that's pitched to get the interest of someone like you. The sermon you heard today is for people who have already bought into the whole thing, he would say, which is why he would say, I understand it and you don't understand it because I know what everything in that sermon actually meant. Um, so I, I was really lucky because he was explaining to me what was happening um, at the same time, I would sometimes have a new experience or hear something uh, in a way that struck me that, that, that was kind of new for me that would then give him a chance to hear something again for the first time. It was really, it was interesting. Um, normally, we think of that kind of experience as taking place like in a foreign country, but it was, it was really moving to me that this was happening in my own country and kind of a lesson in in how little I knew about the United States. My, probably my favorite line in the whole book, somewhere in the middle where you say, 
I've come to realize how little I know about white people. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I just thought, well, there's this blur of white people. And then there, you know, I'm, we, I, I would used to play this game with my husband who's from Scotland. He would have me listen to BBC radio. And then I was supposed to identify if the accent was Irish or Scottish or South of England or the North of England. Um, you know, where in the Commonwealth is this, is this accent? And then I would say, okay, now you can go look at Asian people and tell me if you think they're Chinese or Korean or Japanese or like, <laughs> it was this game that we would play. And then I would come back to the United States and there would just be this blur of white people. Um, but that's not how Eric saw the world at all. We would be traveling through the center of the country and he would pick out Mormons and he would say, well, I think that person's a Mormon. And I think that person's a... Uh, um, an old order Mennonite. There's a scene, one of my favorite things that happens in the book is when uh, a guy delivers an experimental combine harvester to us. And he just looks like a guy, you know, he's in his button up shirt and jeans and he has on the cap. This is the way everybody dresses. And Eric says to me, there's something about his accent. Listen to him. He doesn't, he's, he's from, he's from someplace. And the guy turns out to be sort of uh, an escapee from a really, really extreme sect of, uh, I think, of Mennonites. Um, and Eric knew from the guy's accent. It was fascinating. Uh, there are these minute differences in people that I had never paid attention to. And he's really good at it. And actually, Eric came to see me in New York City for Thanksgiving one year with his wife, Emily. and. You know, it was interesting to see who Eric would react to or talk, start talking to in the city. He ended up having a whole conversation with um He saw some Mennonites uh, and he said to me, you know, a lot of the horses that um, pull the carriages through Central Park come from these Mennonite farms and then they end up as as uh, horses in Central Park. And so he would joke as we, we would ride in a carriage in Central Park and then he would call out to the Mennonites and say, you know, is this your horse? And they had this whole inside joke with each other that that because of, the con because of their shared um, culture, they were able to joke with each other in this way. But it's something I would never have noticed. Did you come out thinking any differently at all about farming. I mean, you, you, you share a lot of information that you learned about farming from no-till farming to the use of Roundup to, um, I think one prediction that when looking back in history, that when soils fails, civilizations die. Well, a couple of things I would say, I understand now why the quote unquote founding fathers were so ecstatic once they found North America, because it's, a landmass that's able to produce enough food for its own people. And that's pretty unusual. I don't think that even China at this time is able to produce enough food to feed its population. Most countries in the world still have to import food in order to have enough for its people to eat. And that's not true of the United States even now. Now, it doesn't mean that the net calories that we produce are going to be things that we all want to eat it's going to be sort of hard to go paleo necessarily uh, for everybody to go paleo because a lot of our calories are still going to come from grains. Because of my understanding of how amazing that is, that North America is able to produce enough food for its people, it gave me an understanding of how 
intensely uh, the founding fathers fought to have the land and, you know, conversely <laughs> also made it clear why their behavior was so ugly um, in seizing that land. Um, so there's that. I think I understand more clearly how, as I said, a number of the calories that we will subsist on will likely come from grains if we're not able to import food. Um, and how my years of, you know, eating microgreens and, and, um, and vegetables was a really a sort of a very privileged and luxurious way of eating that we may not necessarily be able to do over the next couple of years. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, so I have a lot, I have even more respect for the fact that we make our own food and produce it and for the people who have found ways to generate the food. The other thing that really blew my mind was this report that the UN put out, which said that by 2050, there would be, I can't remember the number now, but there, the population across the globe would be so high, we would in fact need to have more food to feed all of the people on the planet. Um, and I did not know that we already farm 37 to 38% of arable land. And so if we're going to have more food, we either need to generate more food out of the land that we already farm, or you know, burn down forests to create more arable land, which none of us really wants to do. Um, that's something that really blew my mind, that really made me think we need to be open to how we can responsibly farm land using science and using tools that are available to us so that we don't take more land out of forests and turn it into arable land. The other thing that also really surprised me was how much of our arable land we're losing, um, how much farmland has gone into suburbs or has gone into condominiums, et cetera, which since we're having a growing population is also a problem because we don't want to continue to lose arable land if it can generate food and if we're going to <clears throat> need that food. So I think the urgency of being able to create food um, was something that both my parents had talked to me about, my father, just because he'd heard his parents talk about the depression and because he grew up on a farm. And my mother, because she grew up, she was born during the war in Japan and grew up after the war when there wasn't enough food in Japan. Um, and I always sort of was this, you know, know-it-all American kid growing up in California thinking, oh, here go these people talking about how we shouldn't waste food. But you know what? They were totally right. Can you share a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? So this is um, Dreams, Myths, and Fairy Tales in Japan by Hayao Kawaii, uh, who was a Jung, the first Japanese Jungian psychologist. And he has a little book um, where he analyzes fairy tales and Japanese dreams. And I will read um, this paragraph or two paragraphs. Um, and the first paragraph just kind of details what the scholar thinks of a fairy tale, and that, that'll become clear as I read. There is a strong conflict in the heroine's mind. She is bitter at him for having transgressed her prohibition, meaning he saw what he wasn't supposed to. Yet at the same time, her yearning for her husband is strong. As a solution to this conflict, she writes a poem. The exchange of songs tells us the end of the story. 
Actually, in some versions of Urashima, which is another fairy tale, we find exchanges of songs between the man and the woman at the end of the stories. James Hillman, while staying in Japan, once remarked that the Japanese like aesthetic solutions to conflicts. The ending to the story of Urashima is a beautiful image, and the myth with the exchange of songs is a fine example of this sort of resolution. It is remarkable that the goddess neither becomes angry nor meets out any punishment to the transgressor who sees her naked, original form. It is worth comparing this tale with the story of Artemis and Acteon in Greek mythology. There the goddess becomes so angry with Acteon that she turns him into a deer, which is finally killed by his own dogs. Contrary to this, the Japanese goddess is not stirred to anger, but instead just disappears. The exchange of the poems forms a solution to the conflict. Tell me why you chose that. Well, it's something that I think about all the time. Basically, Kawaii is saying there are there exist fairy tales and stories that have a completely different structure to the ones that we are used to in the West. And ever since I've read this, I've thought about how have I been brainwashed from the time that I was a kid to think of story and to think of how a story is supposed to go. Because if, in fact, there are and have existed stories with other endings, that means that there are other possibilities for how stories are supposed to go. And that means that in any conflict or in any hardship or in anything that we're facing, it doesn't mean that there's only one way a story can end. Um, I And I've, I've written a little bit about this. I was um, comparing... The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Zeus to a, a, a cat in a Japanese story who is a messy cat. The Cat in the Hat is sort of this devil-like, playful creature who makes a mess and then cleans it up with a machine. And I find, you know, here we are just waiting for technology to come to our rescue and give us a vaccine so that we no longer have the threat of this virus. And that may indeed be the way the story goes. And then the Japanese story with this messy cat, it ends differently with the messy cat deciding that he himself has to clean up the mess that he's made and that he has to go and help his friends clean up the messes in their homes that he has made. So it's a different take on the same situation. And really, it's important to me because, especially, I think, in having one of the big themes in, the, in American Harvest is the overarching um, shadow that the book of Revelation and the Bible casts over the Christian world and over the way that some people think and feel in America. And one of the things that I do in American Harvest is to go back and look at the book of Revelation and say, wait a second, it doesn't go the way that you think it goes. Um, and one of the things I think that I feel is really important for people um, who are exploring faith or want to have a sense of meaning and faith in life is to say that we don't actually know how this all ends. It isn't fated. We don't necessarily have to have the world end in disaster or tragedy. We're still writing what the story is. We don't know where we are in the story. And I think faith is there to sort of give us um, a feeling of connection to each other uh, and to hopefully see us through dark days. But the ending isn't written and the ending doesn't have to be bad. And that feels very important to me. It may sound sort of trite, um, but it does feel important to me as someone, you know, who loves people and does want, does want our story to go well. 
Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Something that I'm surprised no one has asked me about is the part in the book where I'm mistaken for a Native American and the Native Americans invite me to a Sundance and I go to a Sundance. And I'm really probably not supposed to be at the Sundance. And I'm I'm basically passing and I commit a faux pas and I don't behave the way that I'm supposed to. And I get found out that I'm not Native American and I run away. And when this happened, I had a split second where I thought, okay, well, um, I'm not going to put that in the book. And then I thought, wait a second, it, it happened. I can't pretend it didn't happen. Uh, and I've written it over and over and over again. And it was very important to me that the scene was honest and that I didn't at any point make excuses for my behavior. So I'll just read the very end of this. I sit in the parking lot of the casino crying for a half an hour. This is also where I cried after my son left and I am now parched from crying. Then I call my friends who are people of color and ask questions like, where is home and what is a human being? They are mostly patient with me, but some are irritated too. Why don't I know the answer to this question already? When I say I want to go home, they tell me there is no home. They tell me I don't have a set of my own people. My friend Garnett listens to me wail, as he has so often. He doesn't tell me to stop with the white tears. He just listens and finally tells me, go back. You have to go back to the harvesters and love them. Now open your heart and go back. He is adamant. It takes a long time to be calm, though I am more exhausted than quiet. The conversations have helped. I'm sorry to have upset them. There's only each other, I say to myself. There's only communicating with another. There's only the heart. It is the heart that will allow us to bridge the gap. I have not used mine as fully and as well as I could have, and I must try again to do better, but I see no other home than this. God, it sounds so overwrought. <laughs> reading it out of context. Well, I was going to ask you if you wanted to share any other things about it. You know, I was mistaken by a lot of um, people as being Native American, and the Native Americans thought I was. And I got invited to the Sundance, and I went, and I committed this faux pas of drinking water when you're not supposed to. And later on in the book, I go and I see some Mormons who were born and raised on the reservation, because that happens. Um, and they tell me they've been to every single... Um, festival or ceremony, but even they have never been to the Sundance. Um, and then they tell me, well, you know, when there's a Sundance, we turn the sprinklers off for a mile around this sacred site because there can be no water. And the faux pas that I committed was to drink water in front of people who were in the middle of fasting and not drinking. Um, and part of why it happened was because I had been with this crew of evangelical harvesters and gone to their church and felt out of place. And when I was mistaken for being a Native American, I thought, oh, maybe I can feel, you know, at home here in this environment, except I didn't feel at home there either. So that's what all the where is the home thing comes from, which makes sense in the in the context of the story. But it was a really difficult um, part of the story. And it gets even more complicated because we we learn much more about the history of that particular reservation. Uh, and I am even more uncomfortable as the book goes along.
because I, I realized, you know, we're camping on an RV park that's adjacent to a casino, um, harvesting wheat that is grown by Mormon farmers on land that is owned by what they call the tribes. So it's very complicated American history. And it's, it was impossible for me not to engage in it. Um, and to, to think about this living history, really, that is still going on in our country. Where do you write? Wherever I can, wherever I have quiet. I used to have many more needs than I do now. Now, basically, I just, I really do, in fact, just need a, a room where I can shut the door and have relative quiet and be uninterrupted. Um, but I am also happy to write in hotels. Uh, I've even written in airplanes. Um, and that's all a big change since having a family. I've found that I, if I'm going to get any writing done, I simply have to do it. And as long as I can kind of cut myself off from people, I've found that I have been able to write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, currently, since I am sheltering, I go out and look at this garden that is um, uh, part of my childhood home. And um, I've planted vegetables uh, the day that I arrived here to shelter with my son there were no vegetables in the grocery store so I immediately planted vegetables the next day because my mother had left out seeds to be planted because that's what she would do if she were living here other than that before the pandemic um it was really important to me to I loved going to the museum I loved going to a good show I love spending time with a good friend um and I love scenes of you know nature um, and exercise was important to me. Um, but a lot of those things are a lot harder to access now. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It varies. Um, very often I don't show it to anybody anymore. In the case of American Harvest, I was at the same time, you know, the first person who saw the complete manuscript, I think, was somebody that I was studying with to get an MFA, even though this was my, my third book, I didn't have an MFA. And so I was writing this book as my thesis. So my instructors ended up seeing the work the first time. And then I edited the hell out of that because it was 666 pages. So I edited it down to what it is now. And um, my editor was the first person to see it. And I can't really say in the future who's gonna be the first person to see my work. And even before this, I didn't have a, a regular reader. So it varies. Sometimes, you know, nobody sees what I've written until I send it out and send it to whoever is waiting to get it. How have you dealt with rejection? I'm still learning to deal with rejection. It's part of being a writer. I find it very hard. I think one of the things that I find hard is rejection happens. And at the same time, you don't want to prime yourself for rejection so that you lose opportunities when opportunities come your way. And I still find that, I still find that very, I still find it very difficult. Um, there are people who are very good at dealing with rejection. And I, I wish I were better, but I find it very painful and I find it very hard. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> I don't have a favorite word. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mitzi. Thank you for uh, listening to, uh, to me talk and for asking me such wonderful questions. 
You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Marie mutsky Mockett, author of American Harvest. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Douglas Preston about his expedition deep into the Honduran rainforest to investigate a lost civilization. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 290 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Michelle Bowdler, Ursula Hagee, and R.L. Mazes. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.